Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to start off with. Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, we've already seen in our study, Jesus opened the first six seals on the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth, which we've been looking at already. Tonight, we're going to look at what happens when Jesus opens the seventh seal. But before we do, I want to recap real quickly, because it's been a while since we looked at the first six seals. We'll do a quick recap of what happens during the opening of the first six seals in the first half of the tribulation period. I believe the seventh seal begins the second half, is tied to the second half of the tribulation period. And as you're going to see tonight, just because he's opening one seal on the seventh seal, then we're going to see seven trumpets. And then after the seventh trumpet, there's going to be seven bowls. And so just because we're on the seventh seal doesn't mean we're anywhere near close to the end. But let's look back in our minds and recap the first six. The first seal, we saw the Antichrist arrive on a white horse and he gains power without warfare. The second seal, the rider on the red horse is given the authority to remove peace from the earth. The third seal, we saw the black, black horse arrive and there is famine across the globe. And the fourth uh, seal, we see the pale horse arrive and death happens on the earth. And the way that the death happens across the earth is because of famine, sword or warfare, pestilences or diseases, and wild animals even. That God has allowed to have all this stuff start to go on. And we saw the fifth seal. We saw multitudes of believers are killed for their faith during the tribulation period. And we see their souls under the, under the altar. And they're given white robes and they were told to wait a little longer until the rest of the believers during the tribulation period are killed. And I want to just take you real quick to Revelation chapter 20. And look at just verse 4. Revelation 20, look at verse 4. You'll see a description of two types of people that are killed for their faith during the tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Now if you remember correctly, it says these came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. If you remember uh, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses are sealed by God at the beginning of the tribulation period. They go out into all the globe to preach the gospel. Multitudes of people from every nation, language, and tongue become believers. During the first half, many of those are killed because of their faith. And we see that they're beheaded, which is an interesting thing with some of the stuff we see going on in our globe today. I actually had an interesting conversation with my mechanic and his son uh, this week. And he was just talking about all the bad stuff that's starting to go on in the earth. And I said, you know, people are being beheaded because they believe in Jesus. And he goes, yeah, it's really bad. I go, did you know the Bible said that that was going to happen? He goes, what? And I read to him Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And his eyes got like this big. And I had the chance to tell him and his son, read the Bible. Read the Bible. It tells you what's coming. And so we also saw, though, last time we studied... That those who didn't receive the mark, remember at the midpoint, the Antichrist reveals himself to be who he really is. He's empowered by Satan and he declares himself to be God. And then the false prophet causes people to worship him. When we saw that then the false prophet has everybody receive this mark, 
which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And if you don't take the mark, what happens? You're killed because of that. And we see in Revelation chapter 20, where I just read to you, that at the end of the tribulation period, before the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, those who were killed for their faith during the tribulation period and were beheaded, and those who were killed because they didn't take the mark, are allowed to come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the people that die, the unbelievers, don't come back to life until the end of the thousand years. And of course, they go from there, we'll see later on, straight to the lake of fire. The sixth seal is opened, and we see that there was a huge earthquake, which rocks the whole earth. The sun turns black, the moon becomes blood red, the stars fall from the sky, the mountains and the islands are all moved from their places, and people cry for the mountains and the, and the rocks to fall on them in order to hide them from the face of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, when Jesus opens the seventh seal, where we started tonight in Revelation chapter 8, when Jesus opens the seventh seal, there's silence in heaven for a half an hour. Now, some of you that are from First Baptist in the Atlantic remember a lady named Betty Ruffy. Betty and I have been friends for a long, long time. But if you know Betty, Betty likes to talk. And I used to joke with Betty that I had scriptural proof that she wasn't going to heaven. Because the Bible said there'll be silence in heaven for a half an hour. And I don't think that's possible if Betty were there. Well, Betty knows I love her and Betty's going to be in heaven. But that was a fun thing that we used to always joke about back and forth. But as much as it's fun to tease Betty about this, I want you to take seriously what's going on here. Go with me back to Revelation chapter 4 and look at verses 1 through 8. You see, we need to remember that John has described already for us a scene in heaven where God is worshipped continually, audibly. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, and the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And listen, day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. We have seen already that in heaven, John sees this continual worship of God that is happening day and night, and it never ceases. Yet, at this point, in all that he's seen, and all that he's writing about, when Jesus opens the seventh seal, it stops. I want to try something tonight. We're not going to do this for too long, because people listening on the recording are going to get irritated with us. Let's just go for a little bit with absolutely no sound.
It's kind of powerful, isn't it? Can you imagine a half an hour like that? Absolute silence. This should give us an idea as to the severity about what's to occur on the earth. As bad as the things we've just been reminded about in the first six seals, when the seventh seal is opened, the wrath of God, which has already begun, is about to get amped up. We also need to look closely what happens with the opening of the seventh seal. We see that six, uh, sorry, seven angels stand be- who stand before God, they're given seven trumpets, and they're each going to blow their trumpet in just a little bit. But before they blow their trumpets, an- another angel comes to the altar before God with a golden censer. And he's given much incense to offer on the altar along with the prayers of the saints already in the altar. Uh, what that means, let me go back to Revelation 5 and kind of catch you up. In Revelation 5, look at verses 8 through 14. And he says, And when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, you keep reading, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We see that this incense that is burnt on the altar before God. If you remember when Moses was told to build the tabernacle and given the specific dimensions and all this, there was to be this altar of incense to be burnt in the presence of God right before the Holy Holy, Holy of Holies of the most holy place. And the, that incense was to be continually burnt. That's why they had to keep going in on a regular basis in the morning and in the afternoon or the evening to keep the altar continually burning. And we see now that there's a, an altar like that in the presence of God. And what is being burnt on it, according to the scriptures? The prayers of the saints that come up with a sweet aroma before God. And actually, folks, let me just tell you something. The most important thing to God is not what you do for him. The most important thing to God is not how he uses you for his purposes. The most important thing to God is that you know him. And that you not only know him and say, thank God I'm saved, but that you know what it means to walk with him. I I don't want to take the time because there's so much more we need to get into tonight. But I could show you many places in the Old Testament where the scripture says, what does God require of you? And it ends up with to walk humbly with your God. Enoch walked with God, and he was no more, for God took him. Folks, what's more important is not saying, oh, God, thank you, I'm saved, or God, I want to be used by you today. Jesus said, I gave them eternal life, and this is eternal life, when he prayed in John 17, that they may know you. And that's actually what God's working on with all of us, is that we would know him better, that we would come to know him even more. And one of the greatest ways that he's given for us to have this happen is to learn how to talk to him in prayer. How to spend time with him in communion. Well, Jim, I have a job. Well, the Bible says pray without ceasing. So learning how to talk to him must not be something where we just go lock ourselves away. Now, there are times that we need to do that. 
The Bible talks about having a prayer closet, if you will, or a place where you go get alone. Or Jesus many times got up early in the morning and went off to pray and, or spent time at night in prayer. But what you need to begin to understand is, is that what is a, a worship of God is not showing up into a sanctuary on Sunday morning at 11. Worship of God is actually something that happens all the time as we learn to keep him in our thoughts and in our minds and we practice his presence and we learn how to talk with him and listen to him and walk with him and be led of the spirit as we go. This is a process. This is a journey. And as you grow in your walk with the Lord, you will worry less about what you're doing for God and you'll enjoy more just being with God. And that is the prayer of the saints. Now look closely again in Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was, a sil there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. Did you catch that? On the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The angels holding this incense, probably in a bowl like the ones we saw earlier. And he's offering worship to God. Now, I'm going to go somewhere that may surprise you. We must remember in all the devastation on the earth, God is just in doing so. And he's to be worshipped in all that he does. We love to thank him and praise him for the things that he's done that we think are good. The times that he came through and blessed us. Many of us sing a song in our services, in our churches, about how he gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we need to let that truth sink in. Does God do anything wrong? Can he make a mistake? Does everything he do, is everything he does perfect? That means when he brings judgment, he is right and just and holy in doing so. And when he kills, he's to be worshipped. I had someone come to me about a week or so ago and say, Jim, you said that if we're in heaven, we can see what's going on. But what if we see loved ones who aren't saved? In our minds, we think, well, that will make heaven so bad. I'm going to say something to you that I hope the Spirit of God will help you let sink in. I believe that at that time when we are there and we'll see him for who he is and we'll know him as we are known, as the Bible says, I think that if our loved ones who have rejected Jesus are sent to hell, we will see it as right and holy and just. You understand what I'm saying? On this side, because we're still praying that they be saved, we grieve over the idea, but I think there's a side of us, if we let the scriptures to be true, I believe we will see it from there. God does not rejoice in the death of the saints. The Bible says that. He doesn't love the death of the saints. But you're about to see, I'm going to show you from scripture that the Bible says that if someone rejects Jesus, and after all that God has done to make it possible for them to be saved and to be forgiven and to be given righteousness, if he determines the time for their judgment has come, He's right in doing so. And I believe we'll even be able to look at loved ones and say, he's right. You're wrong. Go ahead. Did Jesus say that in Luke 14? That you have to love me more than even to the point where it looks like hating your mother and hating your father and hating your brothers. That's a big part of it. Definitely. 
Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Go ahead. Where in the Word does it tell us that we can see our loved ones? I, I, I've already taught on this a couple times ago, but I'm doing it real quick. We see that in Moses, when Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, they knew what was going on on the earth. They talked with Jesus about what's going to take place in Jerusalem. Samuel, when he was brought up, knew what was happening on the earth. Hebrews chapter 12 says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. In other words, they're watching. Let us run with perseverance. I believe the Bible shows that those who are on the other side can see. We even see in the story that Jesus told of Lazarus and the rich man that when he was in Hades, he could see heaven. I believe the Bible shows that those who are in, in the presence of God are aware of what's happening on the earth. And so I believe the Bible's very, angels rejoice when people get saved, the Bible says. I think it's very possible for the scriptures to show us that those who are in heaven can see what's going on. We struggle with it because we think, well, there's so much sadness and so much bad stuff. How can heaven be good if I can see what's going on here? We kind of want to go to heaven and leave this behind, don't we? <laughs> but look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. The Hebrew writer says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Are we not seeing this picture starting to happen? You're going to see more of it later on in our study. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What the Hebrew writer says here, and we're going to go look at some other scriptures, they're going to make this even more clear. The Hebrew writer says, look, if God, when He brought His judgment on the earth, brought his judgment because people rejected. How much more when they've been warned from heaven? By the way, well, when were we warned from heaven? And does anybody, I heard it. When Jesus himself came from heaven to the earth, God himself came to this earth and spoke. Before he spoke and he shook the mountain, but Moses was his person that spoke to us. But Jesus himself is God. He came from heaven himself and proclaimed to us the truth. And if you've reject, if they, if they reject, who rejected Moses were judged, how much more are those who are warned from heaven itself? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Back up a couple of chapters real quick. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Stick with me, I'm coming back to that. And has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, again, listen closely. The Bible's so clear, and I don't have time to get into this at all, because we've talked about it so many times. If you are truly saved, and if the Spirit of God has been given to you, you are sealed by God, and you are going to heaven. But Jim, didn't it say 
that they were sanctified and then they're going to be sent to hell. Listen closely. I've been trying to explain this to you and I want this truth to sink in. Even though there are those that teach that Jesus only died for the elect, that's not what the Bible teaches. At the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the entire world. The Bible says that over and over. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says he died not only for our sins, but also the sins of the entire world. In Colossians chapter 1, I believe it's around verse 19, it says that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. Things in heaven, things on the earth, things under the earth. At the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of the whole world. The whole world, listen closely, don't hear it wrong. The whole world has been forgiven of their sins. That doesn't mean the whole world is going to heaven. Because in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven, you have to now receive by faith this offer, this salvation that has already been paid for. We see the story of it in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus tells the story of the man who was forgiven this huge debt. He was forgiven the huge debt. He then had a fellow servant that owed him a small debt, would not forgive his fellow servant. When the master of that servant found out, he took that guy, threw him into prison until he could pay the last penny, which means he's not going to ever pay it off. And he was forgiven, but he was sent to hell? Yes, because it was obvious from how he treated his brother that he had never received the forgiveness that was offered to him. That's why you can trample underfoot the blood of the covenant, which sanctifies you. And that's what I want to read it to you again. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no other way for you to be forgiven. There's no other way for you to be made right before God. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, listen, and has outraged the spirit of grace? By the way, how does God draw the world to himself? Through the spirit of God. No one comes to the Father unless the spirit draws them. John 6, verse 45 says, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes to him. Those of you who have had kids, you know there's a big difference between your kids hearing and listening. The whole world hears. Only those who listen come. And by the way, Jesus talked about all sin being forgiven except what? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The only sin not forgiven, the only sin not covered by the death of Jesus on the cross is when the Spirit of grace draws you to salvation and you reject it. So listen closely. As we start moving into what's going to happen as he opens the seventh seal, and as you're about to see this angel take fire from the altar, as he's worshiping God, he's going to throw it on the earth. And God is just and right in doing so. But you're also going to see as we keep going, even though he's sending his judgment and his wrath on man for their sin, he's going to be merciful and give opportunities for them to respond all the way to the very, very end. All the way to the very end. Now, we're not going to turn there, but if you think back with me, some of you may know this, some of you may not, double check me. But like in Genesis 15, Abraham says to God, you promised me this son, but I haven't seen it yet. So it looks like Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. And God comes to him and says, no, Eliezer is not going to be your heir. Your servant's not going to be your heir, but a son coming from your own body. And then God gives him this promise. He says, know for certain that your descendants are going to go into slavery for 400 years. And they're going to come out with great wealth. 
And I'm going to bring them back into the land that I promised. And this is what he says. For the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. When God brought the nation of Israel into the promised land, he used them to wipe everybody out, didn't he? What were his instructions? Keep the good ones alive? No. Wipe them all out. Don't save any of them. Why? Because God had given them 400 years to repent. And at that time, God knew it's time for the judgment. And so as God opens this seal, and as he's being worshipped for what he's doing, he's right and he's just in doing it. Let me show you one other example of what I want you to see. Go to Revelation chapter 16. This jumped off the page at me when I was preaching a prophecy conference in Virginia about, a, I don't know, about half a year ago. In Revelation 16, look at verses 3 through 7. It says, The second angel pours out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. And a third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the, the God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. By the way, who's saying this? Look at verse 5. The angel, what? The angel in charge of what? The angel in charge of the waters. When the, an angel pours out this bowl, and you're going to see it. Remember, there's seven trumpets, and there's going to be seven bowls. When the second bowl and the third bowl are poured out, all the what's left of the oceans and the fresh water will be ruined and turned to blood, and everything is going to be killed. And the angels who are in charge of the waters, when their water is being totally destroyed, say, you're right in doing it. So I want you to understand that when we get to heaven, even if we see that loved ones have rejected Christ, I believe we'll have a holy understanding that says, he did everything to make it possible for them to respond. He died for their sins. He drew them by his spirit. He put people in their path. He's right and just for what he's done. Hopefully that puts within you a desire to pray for your loved ones even more so that God would give them grace to the very end if they haven't responded to him. Knowing all this will be better prepare us for all that's going to happen next because, like I just said, this same angel will take the censer, fill it with fire from the altar, and throw, it, throw that holy fire on the earth. If you go back to Revelation chapter 8, look at verse 5. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All warning signs, aren't they? Those of you out there that like to golf, what are you supposed to do when you hear thunder? Get, no, don't hold your club up. Put, uh, put, you, you run for the shelter. You don't go stand under a tree. You don't think the heavy stuff won't come down for a while. You are supposed to heed the warning. Well, when this angel throws his fire on the earth, there's rumblings, thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. Go to Revelation chapter 8. Look at verses 6 through 13. It says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain 
burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that are the three angels are about to blow. Now as fire from the altar is thrown to the earth, the seven angels begin to blow their trumpets one at a time. And we see in the first trumpet that hail and fire mixed with blood are thrown onto the earth. And a third of the earth is burnt. A third of the trees are burnt and all of the green grass is burnt. Now let me ask you a question. If God is holy and right and just in sending his judgment on the earth because of their rejection of him. Why does he only destroy a third? His mercy. He's giving, being merciful. He's giving them opportunity to respond. He's giving them opportunity to respond. We see the second trumpet's blown and a flaming mountain is thrown. Some people believe it might be a meteorite, possibly. Something like a flaming mountain, the scripture said, is thrown into the sea and a third of the sea is turned to the blood and a third of the sea creatures die and a third of the ships are destroyed. Again, we could try to speculate on how this is going to happen or what this is all going to be. Again, when it comes to prophecy, if we don't know, just put it in your heart. Know what the scripture says so that when it takes place, you'll go, ooh, this is what the scripture was talking about. Too many people try to speculate on how this is going to happen and all this. All I can tell you is this. Something like a meteorite, doesn't mean it would be a meteorite, but something like a meteorite, the size of a mountain flaming with fire is going to come down onto the earth and it's going to land in the oceans and a third of the oceans are going to be destroyed and every third of everything in it and a third of all the ships. How that happens, don't know. Is it going to be just one ocean and the other two thirds are going to, I don't know how it's going to work, but the scripture says that's going to happen. And so just keep that in mind. Thank the Lord we won't be here when this happens, but that's what's going to happen. Have you ever thought back to the first trumpet? Hail and what are thrown down onto the earth? Hail and what? And fire. How in the world do hail and fire work at the same time? Y'all know what causes hail, right? It's when cold water comes down, freezes on the way down, but because of the storm, it doesn't make it to the earth. It's caught back up in the clouds and picked back up again. It's kind of like when you make a snowball on the earth, you know, you roll it and it gets bigger and bigger. That's what's happening with this water droplets. They get frozen. They come down, but they don't, even though they're heavy, they don't all the way to the earth. They get sucked back up into the cloud. They freeze some more and it just the cycle. Then pretty soon it gets to a big enough size that it comes down and just does a bunch of damage. But here we got hail and fire. I think God's trying to get the world's attention. Mixed with blood. The third trumpet's blown and a star falls from heaven and hits the fresh water like a blazing torch. The star's name is what? Wormwood. A third of the fresh water becomes bitter and many people die because of the bitter water. Uh, some translations in the passage I'm going to take you to, the ESV doesn't use this word, but some translations actually use the word wormwood. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 9, because God has actually turned water, fresh water bitter, to get the, uh, the nation's attention before. Jeremiah chapter 9, look at verses 12 through 16. 
In Jeremiah 9, verses 12 through 16, it says, Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom is the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food. Some translations say wormwood. And give them poisonous water to drink. And I will scatter them among the nations whom, they, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. This is God's judgment on Israel at this time because of their rejection of God and going after the false gods that they had been taught by their fathers. And because of that, God sends them wormwood or bitter water, and he gives it to them to drink, and he scatters them to all the nations, and their land becomes a desolate waste. So when God sends the wormwood, as he will in the second half of the tribulation period, if anybody's been faithful to pay attention, they can't go, well, they've never seen this before. Actually, God's been giving us pictures of this all along, all along, and ultimately it's bringing its fulfillment in the tribulation period as God brings His final judgments on the earth. The fourth trumpet affects the sun and the moon and the stars in some way that causes the day to lose a third of its light and a third of the night as well. I've got to be honest with you, I've tried to think in my mind and looked at people's research as to how this might happen. How do we lose a third of the sun's light or a third of the night even? But remember, if the night's lit at all, it's lit from the sun. As it just makes its way around that side of the earth and bounces off the moon, if you will. But somehow, some way, the sun and the moon and the stars are affected that they lose a third of their light. Now, some people speculate that this could be because of earthquake on the earth, that the axis of the earth is shifted in such a way that the sun only doesn't hit the earth as much as it used to or whatever. We, we could speculate all we want. Don't try to figure it out. Just know that this is going to happen. And let me also show you that Jesus has been telling this, this too. Go with me to Luke 21. Luke 21, verses 25 through 28. In Luke 21, starting in verse 25, look at what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Didn't we just read the Hebrew writer saying, one time I shook the earth, but once more I'm going to shake the heavens? The powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Don't read yourself into this. He's not talking to the church. He's talking to the nation of Israel. Remember, this whole church thing, this whole Gentiles being grafted into the vine and becoming co-heirs with Israel and having His Spirit come within us. The Scripture shows us that that was a mystery that hadn't been revealed to previous people. The prophets of the Old Testament hadn't had it revealed to them. But to the apostles and the prophets in the church age, these things were being revealed. Jesus was sent to who? The Jews. Then the Gentiles, when the Jews rejected Him. And yes, He does save us Gentiles and thank God for it. 
We're in this church age in which we're being saved to make Israel jealous, but he's going to take us away at the end of that time period, and he's going to finish what he started with the nation of Israel. And these signs that Jesus is talking about, he's talking to the nation of Israel. And if you've been sticking with me in this study, you'll see that this is all the stuff we're reading about in the tribulation period. So are we going to be in the tribulation period if we're the church? No. So we don't have to, when we see things take place, look up because our redemption draws nigh. A lot of Christians try to claim that is our sign for us to be watching. No, he's talking to the nation of Israel. Go ahead. Read verse 24 of Luke 21. Yes, exactly. It says in verse 24, they'll fall by the edge of the sword and be left captive of all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then there will be... Signs on the sun and the moon. Folks, when he says these things here, he's describing what's taking place in the tribulation period with the seven seals and the trumpets and the bowls. And this is all the stuff that's going to precede his second coming. So he's telling the Jews, if you're willing to pay attention and you unfortunately are alive at this time, Israel, and you see these signs, look, look up, be watching because your redemption draws nigh. Go ahead. A little further down, verse isn't that more confirmation for us that, that we're not going to be here for it? Verse 36. Yes, exactly. Verse 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Yes. The, folks, what's happened to us is, is because for the longest period of time in the church age, there was no Israel. You've got to understand, the nation of Israel, because of their rejection of the Messiah, God scattered them to all the nations, as we've been reading about, just like He said He would. And for almost, it's been not, almost, it was 1900 and something years, I don't know the exact number, but almost 2,000 years, there was no Israel in the land. That's why everybody wants to call it Palestine. That's why all the people are saying that the Jews have stolen that property. No. Because of the fact that even though there was an Israel, but God knew where they were, they were all scattered because of his judgment. And he had said in the last days he'll bring them back. Because there wasn't one, for, for almost 2,000 years, the first 2,000 years of the church age, when Bible teachers and preachers would read about these things, they didn't believe the Bible when God said he'll bring Israel back. Even though, like I told you before, when he told them, I'm going to take you out of the slavery in Egypt and bring you back, they believe he did. And when he told you, said, I'm going to take you out of captivity in Babylon and bring you back into the land, and he did. Even though the scripture says in the last days, I'm going to bring you back from all the nations and put you back in your land. They didn't believe that because it didn't make sense. So they just started taking a verse here and a verse there that talked about how we have been grafted in. And we are also called Israel because not all of, of Abraham are the children of Israel, but also those who are of faith. And they built a doctrine that pretty much the church is now the fulfillment of all the promises. And in doing so, they tried to read the church into all these end times teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. And we've gotten ourselves all messed up. Let me give you an example. When he talks about two will be working in the field, one will be taken, another one will be left. For years, people taught that that was the rapture. But if you look at the context, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, one will be taken and one will be left. Let me ask you a question. When in the days of Noah, who was taken, who was left? The sinners were taken in judgment. The ones left were the righteous to stay on the earth. At the time of the second coming of Christ, the wicked will be taken. There's going to be a harvest. We'll get into that in the end of our study of Revelation. You're going to see there's two harvests. Harvest of the righteous and harvest of the wicked. 
And the wicked will be taken to judgment. Those who are righteous on the earth at the end of the tribulation period, who have even lived through it, are going to be left on the earth to live in the millennial kingdom. He's going to come. We're going to come with him. He's going to set up his kingdom. So I say to you, look closely when you study, especially the Gospels in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. When you look at the teaching of Jesus about the end times, he was talking to Israel, not the church. And all these passages make so much more sense. All right. John then sees and hears an eagle flying overhead, crying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of what will happen when the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are blown. In other words, has what we've seen already been pretty, pretty bad? This angel might be one of the four living creatures because it wouldn't look like an, an eagle. This eagle cries out and says, Woe, woe, woe to the three the trumpet's about to be blown for the people that are on the earth. Now, what we're going to do in the time we have here is take a look quickly at some of Revelation chapter 9. Let's go back with me to Revelation chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. And as far as we get tonight, it's where we'll stop. And let's take a look at at least the next trumpet. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair were like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have kings as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now there is so much here, we're not going to be able to finish this section tonight. But let me just, just take a little bit of time to deal with some of these things, and we'll deal with the rest of it when we come back next week. Here we see the first of the three woes. And look closely. These are demons that are released from the bottomless pit and allowed to torture all the humans without the seal of God on their foreheads. We'll get into whether or not this means believers versus unbelievers, or if it's only meaning that the 144,000, which we know have the seal on their forehead, are the only ones that aren't harmed. And is it possible that the believers will be harmed by these demons at this time? We'll get into all that next time we get together, because I want to show you some things about that. But for right now, let's just look at the fact that the, all those humans that don't have the seal of God on their forehead will be tortured by these demons for five months, and they'll be so bad, they'll wish to die, but they're not going to be able to. Now, these demons come from the bottomless pit or the abyss. And I think, honestly, what we're reading here might be where all this silly teaching about Satan ruling in hell comes from. It talks about this angel from the bottomless pit. Where it says that he's as king over them. 
this one whose name is Abaddon in the Hebrew and in the Greek it's Apollyon. In the, in the Hebrew it means destruction, in the, uh, the, the Greek it means destroyer. To be honest with you, this angel of the bottomless pit might not be Satan, but just might be a powerful angel. It also could be Satan, we don't know. But let me just point something out to you. Did this angel have the keys to the bottomless pit? How did the angel get the keys then? They were given to him. So even if this is Satan, Satan doesn't have the keys to the bottomless pit. If he's going to unlock something, he's got to get the keys from somebody. It's kind of like when our kids were learning to drive. It was a big deal when mom and dad would say, here, go start the car. I remember the first time my parents told me I could start the car. They didn't let me drive yet, but it was a big deal to just start. Does anybody remember that? Does anybody else like me when it was cool just to be able to start it? I know you probably had to crank it, Jim, but I mean, I'm talking about back when we had keys. I remember one time when we were in a mall parking lot in New Hampshire, and our parents had a little Honda Accord with a, it was an automatic, but it had the shifter in the middle and it had a little button on the side and you do that to change the gears. And my dad said to me, here, Jim, go start the car. I was so excited. And I sat down in that car and I cranked it up. And in my excitement, instead of getting out of the car to go around and let them get in and drive, I decided just to climb from the driver's seat to the passenger seat. But I'd also made another mistake, too. I had just, because I wanted to, revved the motor a little bit on the gas pedal. And I had the RPMs up a little bit. And while the RPMs were still up, and I, my climbing from the driver's seat over to the passenger seat, my knee hit the shift button, and I put it in drive. And there was a car right in front of us in the parking lot. And I already had the RPMs, and that car laid rubber as it started to head for the other car. And in between the two seats, I realize all this is going on. And with my left hand, I grab it and shove it into park, which, by the way, is not very good for a car. <laughs> Praise the Lord, two things happened that weren't bad. One, we did not hit the car in front. I got it done just in time. And two, the transmission didn't drop to the floor either. But I wasn't allowed to start the car for a long time. <laughs> I didn't have the keys, nor were they given to me for a while. Look closely. If this is Satan or even a powerful angel, he's given the keys to unlock it. You know why? Go with me back to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verses 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the keys. Satan does not have the keys. He's not ruling and reigning in hell. But you know, actually, the Bible actually shows us 
that this pit has been there all along. This pit, the abyss, as I'm going to show you real quickly in the time we have left, is actually a temporary place of holding for the wicked angels. You remember back in Genesis, the Bible talked about how in Genesis 6, some of the angels left their first position and they cohabited with women on the earth and they tried to corrupt the seed of man. Because Jesus had said, or God had said that a seed of the woman is going to crush his head, so Satan tries to corrupt the seed. And because of this, the book of Jude tells us that some of the angels that rebelled were immediately put into places of torment, a place of holding until the time of judgment. Go to Luke chapter 8, look at verses 26 through 31. In Luke 8, verses 26 through 31, it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackled, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into where? The abyss. This is that bottomless pit. This is that place of torment. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. You see it? The bottomless pit, this abyss, is a place of torment. It's a place of, it's a prison for these rebellious angels. Go to Revelation chapter 20 and look at verse 7. And then when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his what? From his prison. All right. Go with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Remember, we've already been introduced to this beast. The Antichrist is going to be empowered by Satan. Bible actually describes him as one who has risen from the bottomless pit. And if you were to look at Revelation 17, verse 8, you'll see the same description. So we see that this place, this bottomless pit, is a place of torment. It's a place of torture. It's a place of, it's a prison for angels, the wicked angels. But God lets them in and out of this place for his purposes. So when we go back to Revelation chapter 9 now, we see the fifth angel blows his trumpet and a star fallen from heaven, meaning one of these fallen angels, fell to the earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft and then the smoke came locusts on the earth and they are given power and these, these are actually demons that come and torture. We're not going to take the time to go there because we don't have time left in our study tonight. But I'm going to show you when we come back next week that in the book of Joel chapter 2, if you want to spend some time reading ahead for next week, Joel chapter 2 talks about this coming judgment. 
Joel chapter 2 actually describes it in the de- maybe even more detail than this, this judgment that is to come. Now, for years, back when I didn't take prophecy literally, and I tried to spiritualize it, because that's the kind of church I was raised in up in New Hampshire. They didn't believe in a literal Israel and a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and everything was the church, and we were taught that you just die and go to heaven. This whole idea of coming back to the earth for a thousand years was never taught. And so, because of that, whenever I would read prophecy, when I first started studying the scripture, I would try to figure out. And I would look at these descriptions of what their powers and their tail and all this kind of stuff. And I tried to picture helicopters. And you ever been there? You know what I'm saying? You're trying to figure out, well, maybe that's this. And maybe. And now I've come to realize when you see what we look at next week, the Bible describes these things a long time ago. They were they're demons that come out of that pit and they're allowed to torture people on the earth. I think in the time we have left, I want to deal real quickly with... The demons are allowed to torment everyone who doesn't have God's seal on their forehead. The question comes now, who has God's seal on their foreheads? We know from Scripture that the 144,000 Jewish witnesses do. Go back to Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 real quick. Let me remind you of this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it lists the 12 tribes and how there's 12,000 from each. Now, as for whether or not these demons only inflict unbelievers or believers as well, we really don't know. I'll be honest with you, we don't know. There is great debate amongst all Bible scholars and prophecy people, and there's a bunch that have a bunch of scriptural evidence on one side and a bunch that have scriptural evidence on the other side. Some will say, well, this is God's judgment on the wicked, so he wouldn't be bringing this judgment on believers at this time. Yet others would say, but we also know from scripture that just because we're believers doesn't mean that we're spared from some of these things even now. For example, was... Satan allowed to inflict suffering on Job? Yeah, he was allowed. The question was, he allowed? Satan was allowed to inflict suffering on Job, even though Job was a righteous man. And if you remember, he was given boils to the point that he wished he could die. Well, again, I'm showing you, what did Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and following? Because of these surprisingly great revelations... A messenger of Satan, a thorn in my flesh, was given to torment me. It was called a messenger of Satan. And I prayed three times that it would be taken away, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient. And so what I want you to understand is, is if you ask me where I lean, I lean toward the fact that these judgments are happening to believers as well. Now you say, Jim, wait a minute. I don't like that. I didn't say I was right. But if I look at the scripture and try to be faithful to what it says, the only ones we see evidence that are sealed by God on their foreheads are these 144,000. It might also be that God allowing the torment to happen to believers as well would be an opportunity for the believers to give witness to their faith in God. Because doesn't the Bible say, if you look at 1 Peter, that our trials have come so that our faith of greater worth than gold may be found genuine? That as we respond to the same thing that happened to others on the earth, and we respond in faith and obedience to God, and we don't walk away, that the world may know that our faith is real. Again, I may be wrong. I do not know. 
I lean toward the fact that this judgment only affects or doesn't affect the 144,000. I want to think that it's all the believers aren't are spared, and it may be. But we don't have any scriptural evidence that these individuals that are saved are sealed. Because they're definitely not protected from being killed by Satan, are they? Remember, we see all through Scripture in Revelation and also in Daniel that Satan was given authority to make war against the saints and to conquer them. So I don't see any scriptural evidence that believers will be spared these things. Although, maybe when you go back to look at the nation of Israel in Egypt and how when God brought the judgments and the plagues, it didn't affect Israel, but it affected everybody else. I don't know. So the answer is we don't know. And just because I lean one way doesn't mean I won't lean another way tomorrow. I just want you to understand, as you study Scripture, don't build your doctrine on, well, what I want to believe is this. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the danger. Too many people will come to a place like this and wrestle with it and say, well, what makes me feel good is I want to believe in a God who will, and then you build your own God. I lean toward the side that I don't feel as comfortable with, because I'm trying to remain faithful to the scripture and I want God to be God and his word to be true. And I want you to be the same type of people. Don't lean the way I lean because Jim does. But don't build your doctrine on, well, the God I worship would never. Do you see what I'm saying? Because I could show you 50 scriptures that show you he would. But for tonight, as we bring this to a close, understand that everything God does and what is to come is just. Oh, and by the way, how come this hasn't all begun yet? Does anybody have a scripture for us to help us understand why this hasn't all begun yet? Well, okay, it's not time, but why? We, we got a scripture. I mean, because we've already heard a couple people say, let's go, right? And someone said that tonight. Let's go. Oh, close. There we go, Susan. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. It's all right. Paraphrase it for us. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's not slow in keeping his promise the way we count slowness. If we all had a vote tonight in this room, we'd say, Lord, let's go. Let's get up a load and head on to heaven now. But if he's chosen to have us wake up again tomorrow, we have a mission and we have a role. What's your mission and your role? Now, this is a trick question, so stick with me. What is your mission and what is your role if you're alive tomorrow? To walk humbly with your God. You, very good. You kept us from having to stay late. <laughs> Not to go serve God, but to walk with him. And you'll end up where you're supposed to be. And you'll be used how he wants to use you. I love you all. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.